0: The internet has created much opportunity for artists and labels, but it's also created a lot of problems. The biggest and most serious of these problems is the inability of artists and labels to control their own copyrights. In other words, we aren't able to say who can put up our songs where, and if we find companies using our music without permission, we can't effectively get them to stop. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rock Stars. On today's show, we look at how this happened and why a large group of artists and labels have banded together to ask Congress to change Section 512 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, or DMCA. Having control over where our music goes on the internet could be a game changer for artists and labels. But can it be done? It's all coming up on The Future of What. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Richard Burgess of A2IM. Richard, welcome to The Future of What.
1: Thank you so much, Portia. It's nice to be
2: here.
0: So let's start with just a, a little teeny overview of what an independent label trade association is, just so the listeners know who you represent.
1: An independent trade association, obviously, is a trade association that represents various different trade organizations. And in our case, we represent primarily record labels, but we also represent other associated organizations as well. But independent record labels form voting membership, and we are 34.4% of the United States market share of the music industry.
0: Which I think is the largest share, is it not?
1: It's bigger than Universal Music, which would be the second largest share, yes. So combined, the independent sector is bigger than any other label.
0: So we have asked you here today to talk about a letter that has been sent to Congress and it regards the DMCA and it regards Section 512 of the DMCA specifically. And what I would like you to do for our listeners is explain briefly what the DMCA does and what Section 512 does in particular.
1: The DMCA was the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. and It was written in the latter half of the 90s and enacted in 1998. And I, I want to preface this by saying I'm not an attorney, but I was actually there when the DMCA was being written. And the, the idea was to provide a framework for artists, musicians and labels to get paid from the, the performance of recordings on digital Radio, as it were, web radio at the time. It was just evolving, and as you probably know, in the U.S., we're one of very, very few countries in the world that doesn't have a performance right on terrestrial radio. So, the the other countries that don't have it are North Korea, China, and Iran. So. That's been a real loss for musicians in this country over the past nearly 100 years. Radio started up in 1920, and American musicians and artists and labels have never gotten paid when the sound recordings are played on radio. Now, the writers get paid, the people who wrote the song. So just to put this in perspective, if you hear Aretha Franklin's Respect, for instance, on FM radio, Aretha Franklin doesn't get paid for that. Otis Redding does because he wrote the song. And you think about... You know, people like Frank Sinatra, he write most of his stuff. I don't think, you know if he wrote any of his stuff. And so he didn't get paid for all that airplay that he got, but the writers did. So a- as we were moving into the advent of digital radio, web radio, some very smart people in Washington, D.C. got together and said, OK, we've got to fix this. So they were able to fix it for web radio. And that's what the Digital Millennium Copyright Act was all about. And there was a beautiful provision in there for artists which said that not only would the label and the artist and the musicians and the background singers get paid, but the artist would get paid directly. So the, the money would not go back to the label and then be sort of offset against any balance that uh, was held against that artist, you know, for any unrecouped costs. So it immediately meant that from an artist's perspective, when you get airplay on digital radio, you receive 50 percent. It's actually 45% because 2.5% goes to the background musicians uh, through the AFM and 2.5% goes to the singers through SAG-AFTRA. But nonetheless, the performers, the creative entities, as it were, get a total of 50% of the royalties from that airplay. Now, what the Section 512 notice and takedown or safe harbor provision was designed to do was to prevent any kind of accidental Posting of something that the person who posted it didn't own the copyright for, so an unlicensed posting, if you were, prevent that from causing problems for, at the time, ISPs like uh, AOL and and so on. This was 1998. It was a period of dial-up. There was no broadband really to speak of. Certainly wasn't widespread. And we certainly hadn't got into the era of YouTube and user-generated content video and all those kinds of things. So it, it seemed like a pretty reasonable thing at first, and it was. So if somebody accidentally or even deliberately posts a video or, or, or an audio piece or anything that they don't own the copyright for, all the copyright holder has to do is send a notice to that Entity, whatever it is at ISP or whatever it is that has it hosted online and there's a process by which they take it down. And then if for some reason somebody requests that something should be taken down, but they do that erroneously, maybe maliciously then the person who owns the copyright or the, the uploader can then send a counter notice to say, no, actually, I really do own the copyright to this. I do control this copyright and you should put it back up and it gets put back up. Now, that sounds all fine and reasonable, but what has happened is since we've had user-generated content and all the, the various sort of explosive growth of the internet utilizing broadband, in one month, you get in excess of 6 million takedown notices get sent which is obviously unmanageable so you know it's being described as a -a whack-a-mole process and largely it's because the notice and takedown process is written in such a way that it can easily be used to hide behind and so what will happen is someone will find an unlicensed use of one of their copyrights and they'll send a notice to say take it down through this process the service might take it down but it can pop back up again four or five minutes later or even seconds later. And there are organizations who, you know, we can only refer to as bad actors that specialize in doing this. They specialize in just kind of, you know, they'll just come up with another URL and post it. And there's no notice and stay down or capability here. And that's what we really want. We want it so that if you own something, you say to a service or several services, I own this thing and you should take it down, then that thing, that, that copyright should never go back up again. There's no reason to. You know, if you own that copyright, you own it in every instance. It's not just like, well, you should take it down in this instance, oh, in this instance, in this instance, in this instance. And, you know, try counting to six million. You five hundred thousand in a period of a day and you'd have difficulty. Well, try sending, you know, try sending that many notices independent labels, independent filmmakers are reporting having to send as many as 50,000 notices. And there's another problem, too, which is that the, the way the law is written, it does say that the service needs to take the unlicensed copyright down expeditiously. And, you know, one of the biggest services claims they take things down on average between six hours. But there are a number of tests that are being done by various Independent labels and filmmakers, and they show that actually it's taking sometimes months for these things to come down. And bear in mind that this is, you know, compounded because in the months that it's taking for that particular one to come down, then there are other ones going up. And it just, in the end, it becomes a losing battle. And and most independents just give up because they don't have the money, they don't have the resources to do it. But frankly, even the major labels, with all the resources they have, are also giving up, it's, it's it's impossible for them to keep up.
0: And it's comical on some level, Richard. My label, Kill Rockstars, just a couple months ago, like February of 2016, we received a notice from a content provider, a, a service that said, we're notifying you that we took down an infringing copy of the Marnie Stern record, which we had sent in 2010. So six years later, they let us know. I mean, it's hilarious. It's quite... It's quite comical on some level, but, you know, as an industry, it's really not comical. Can you speak a little bit about, you know, the what you're saying about 512 is it was it was designed to provide safe harbor, to my understanding, for companies. So if someone infringes, they couldn't take the ISP to court, sort of like the way that, you know, if somebody buys a gun and shoots somebody with it, the gun manufacturer can't be sued. It's like this safe harbor for the actual corporations. But the problem that we're facing now is we have so much usage in in a way that couldn't have been envisioned in 1998. For example, YouTube alone, with people uploading, you know, millions of pieces of, of copyrighted content on there a day, there's no way that, for people to keep up with that. And so as a result, YouTube is completely safe because of Provision 512, correct?
1: Yeah, these services have become extremely expert at working the system and you know it's speculation but one would have to say that it it certainly appears from the outside to be a cynical process that is happening here that there's really no good intention there's no real attempt to actually solve the problem and it's even worse than that actually because you know um, search engines they will automatically sort of insert the word free in a search so you'll search for a movie Or a record, and then they'll insert the word free and immediately turn up the first two or three returns will be pirate sites. And then when you go to those pirate sites, there are ads being served on those pirate sites by the search engine that actually steered you there. So when you go to that pirate site and download that, you know, BitTorrent, that movie or whatever, you're actually also funding that service that is serving ads to that parasites so you know money's being made off of mal intent as it were and i think that you know that's that's an even deeper problem but there's on so many levels this is a troubling a troubling thing you know the dmca was a, a wonderful thing for artists musicians labels everybody we still don't have that terrestrial right by the way which we still need there's no reason for fm radio to not pay when it Plays music and remember, FM radio is serving ads on radio based on the music that it plays. It attracts a listenership by the music it plays, and then it sells advertising against that listenership. and And yet, the labels and the artists that you know spend their their money and their creative effort on making those records, they're not benefiting from the money that's being made from serving those ads against that music. So it's the same problem here, really. I mean, it's just another way of diverting the rightful revenue that should go to the copyright owners and the copyright creators into the pockets of a corporation that really just regards the music as a commodity. And as as a musician myself, a lifelong musician myself, I find that offensive to be perfectly honest with you. Music is not a commodity.
0: And it's worth pointing out that, you know, for years and years, decades, radio, terrestrial radio used to use the excuse that they were giving artists and labels promotional value by playing them on the radio and that there was even some argument for that when the only way to get an album that you heard on the radio was to go to a store and buy it but with the rise of the internet and the fact that now anyone can get anything for free at a pirate site that excuse is completely out the window because they do not provide promotional value because no one is you know the artist and label are not benefiting because people they like a song on the terrestrial radio they'll just go to the internet and listen to it for free
1: but where it really becomes a problem is where you've got YouTube, for instance, which is, uh, I think, the, the biggest streaming platform. It's certainly where younger consumers go to find their music. And if somebody streams something on there, it's, what is that? A promotional use for what? I mean, it's promotion, so that you can go back and stream it again. Well, you know, then there's no product in the end. I mean, it comes down to can you attract somebody to go to a gig or can you sell a t-shirt to somebody or something else? It's kind of you know, I would liken it to sort of Mercedes-Benz giving away their cars and trying to sell, you know, necklaces and T-shirts and things. I mean, it's not really a good business model, I wouldn't think.
0: They give away the car, but they'll sell you an air freshener.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they'll sell you an air freshener. And that, that's kind of the business that we're in right. to some extent these days. It's a little bit sad, isn't it? When you, when you put it in those terms, it really, it, it's stark.
0: Richard Burgess is the president of A2IM, the Independent Label Trade Association. Richard, thank you so much for coming on The Future of What?
1: Portia, thank you so much for having me. It's it's my pleasure and uh, good to talk to you again.
0: Biblical Violence by Hella. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at K-R-S-F-O-W. You're listening to The Future of What? We're talking to Mitch Glazier of the RIAA. Mitch, welcome to The Future of What?
3: Thanks for having me.
0: So you are, in addition to working for the RIAA, you are a lawyer and you actually helped to draft the DMCA, is that correct? I did. So you have a unique perspective. You can really help us understand, help our listeners understand what the DMCA was intended to do and what Section 512 was intended to do.
3: Yeah, it was at the end of the 90s. And if you think about the time when it happened, it was negotiated in 1997 and 1998. The World Wide Web really came into being in 1995. And so just to give you a sense of the... Stakeholders who were giving input into the process besides the public. The companies were Netscape, Prodigy, MCI. Remember any of these?
0: I remember Prodigy.
3: <laughs> you know, it was really the dawn of web pages and dial up service well before anybody could even contemplate peer to peer services like Napster. Or torrent sites or YouTube. Really, it was about telephone companies Mm -hmm. and what their liability would be for what people did on networks. And so that was really the context for the DMCA. And as you can imagine, you know, 20 something years later, it's a very different world.
0: Yes. Significantly different. When you guys wrote the DMCA, you put in Section 512 as a, what's known as safe harbor so that certain companies would not be liable for infringing behavior. Is that correct? That's right.
3: It was really intended to make sure that if you were a passive network and you were providing internet service, that you weren't going to automatically be held responsible for what individuals did on your network because you didn't really have control over what they were doing. And you were providing a service that was unrelated to the content. And so there were different pieces of the DMCA for different kinds of providers but it really was meant to encompass that passive activity.
0: And so I don't even know if we need to explain to our listeners how that has changed in the last 18 years, but obviously stuff has come up that nobody who was involved in, in drafting that legislation had any idea would be where we are now.
3: Right. I mean, Moore's law really turned out to be true. And this is the, this is the hard part when you're trying to draft legislation, at all that deals with technology or deals with specific you know, types of internet activity because it does advance so rapidly. And so the balance that was put into place was supposed to be a trade. It was basically that those who create music and movies and software, those who are responsible for all of the creative arts in our country, that they would be able to prevent the theft of their works in exchange for granting immunity to these passive providers. And it was really supposed to be a balance that, you know, would last for all time. Only one half lasted for all time, and that's the immunity. The other half, the notice and takedown system, didn't last for very long. I think that the act was passed in October of 1998, and Napster hit college campuses in late fall of 1999. Wow. So it really wasn't very long until a brand new way of distributing content and a level of action by the intermediary into the distribution of content really overtook the, the legislation.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about the history of this situation? Because I know that, you know, it's really straightforward when we think about it today. If we think about, you know, I own copyright as, you know, my label, Kill Rockstars, owns copyright. We find out that there's infringing, someone has infringed. We send a notice under the DMCA, a takedown notice. And that content sometimes comes down in a timely fashion. Let's just say it does. But then it can go right back up again and that's right. that's the issue that we're fighting right this moment is that it's 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 not a takedown stay down environment it's a takedown 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 environment
3: right it's really like whack-a-mole right and when you send so when kill rock stars owns a recording and they want to work with the artist to make sure that they can protect the way that they make that recording available they send a notice and you can't just send a notice saying hey, this is our song, please take it down. You have to say there is one particular file out of a sea of files. You're not entitled to actually see the entire ocean of files. You're only given a tiny glimpse and out of that, you have to identify the one particular file. If there are millions of files containing the same song, you have to send a million notices and then if they take those down individually one by one, each one of them pops up sometimes seconds later, and you start the whole process over again. So it's really an untenable situation, especially for people who don't have a lot of resources.
0: Right, and even the major labels don't have the kind of resources that they could expend on that kind of constant. I mean, it, it makes no sense. That's not, it's not good business for anybody, as far as I can tell.
3: It's not. They have to, on the other side, the intermediaries have to employ staffs and technology in order to receive all the notices and to do the takedowns. And because they keep coming back up, we have to employ the people and the resources and the technology to send the notices. And we're basically all on a hamster wheel going around (laughs) and around and around. It's a game that the intermediaries have to play in order to keep their immunity. But it's completely ineffective and it's a cost center for both sides.
0: So Mitch, what is the best case scenario? I mean, we, as I said at the top of the show, we, we, this letter has been sent to Congress saying, you know, section 512 needs significant reform and 400 artists signed on 18 important music organizations, including the RIAA, A2IM, Sound Exchange, NERIS, SAG-AFTRA, you know, these big players in the recorded music world. What is the best case scenario or, you know, that we could actually get out of this reform? Do you think we'll get reform or do you think it's like too late? Well,
3: I think that the best scenario really is for the parties to come together in a way that is open and responsive to the public and all the stakeholders to come up with an agreed upon solution that works in the present, understanding that it's going to have to change over time. You know, our industry working you know, with our artists and our songwriters and participating in processes in the past, we've been able to come up with solutions with payment processors, with ISPs. We are now working with registrars and registries. We've been able to come up with agreements with advertisers and advertising networks. There really is no reason why we shouldn't be able to sit down with YouTube and Google and others and come up with a system that works for both sides, that's actually effective and protects everybody's interest and the public's interest. And when you do that, understanding that technology changes, you don't stifle tomorrow's new technology and you don't stifle tomorrow's new creator. You create a nimble system where both sides agree that you have to work together in order to allow people to effectively protect what they have without too much of a burden to the other side. But as of yet, Only the creative side, I think, has been willing to come to the table on this issue. And part of it is because of the complete immunity granted to the other side by the statute. And that's where I think the 400-plus artists who signed the petition really come in because their voices are so powerful that it penetrates sort of normal Washington and gets into the public consciousness. And hopefully that kind of acknowledgement and profile and pressure will be persuasive to incite the other side to come to the table and sit down.
0: The distressing news that I have heard is that, you know, we sent this letter 18 organizations and 400 artists, and on the other side, Congress has received 91,000 letters taking the opposite, the anti-copyright perspective. This is very, you know, suspicious. So it's like, who is funding that little movement? But it makes me worried, you know, do you feel like there's going to be enough popular understanding of the issue to help our side make progress?
3: Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, I will say that the other side funded a sort of an internet email campaign where one form, sort of like a form postcard email went to the copyright office. So they received 91,000 of exactly the same, you know, form email with a click. So it was done through a campaign that Fight for the Future did where they, you know, Sent out to lists and said hey do you do you think the internet should be censored? No click here and then something went <laughs> to the copyright office server and the copyright office is full of a lot of really smart expert folks who I think understand that ninety one thousand of the same sentence isn't exactly a genuine expression of how the public feels, whereas the dozens and dozens of filings that the creative community put in from you know, brand new artists and songwriters to the most iconic and today's most popular, I think reflected a diversity. Everybody basically said the same thing overall, but they said it in very different ways. They addressed very different situations. They gave really specific examples that need to be tackled and everybody showed a willingness to sit down and try and solve the problem. So I'm hoping that through the round tables next month that they'll hold in Silicon Valley and in New York, And in the report that they deliver to Congress, more and more attention will gather around the issue. And the more attention it gets, the harder it's going to be, I think, for the other side to just build a wall and refuse to sit down.
0: I think it's, you know, this is a very difficult situation. One of the reasons I started this radio show was to educate people about the workings of the music industry because we have all suffered from a really terrible PR job over the last... At least 20 years plus, you know. And one of the things I'm thinking about is, you know, this issue is not understood well. And so it's so much to our advantage to be able to get people understanding what's actually at stake and what's actually happening rather than, you know, being able to hide behind a screaming headline. And I feel like one of the biggest issues we face in this argument is that the big companies that are the anti-copyright let's say people they have this this screaming headline about about fair use right and that they're getting everyone on their side by saying these people are trying to shut down the internet these people are trying to make the internet less fair and less user friendly and i feel like you know that's a tall order for us as a industry to fight against
3: i think that's right and i think we have to sort of peel the layers back a little bit to help people understand that what this is really about is giant corporations trying to prevent themselves from ever having any liability. That's really what this is about. Right. And, you know, the creative community has always been willing to talk about fair use. Creative community has always been willing to talk about First Amendment protection, protections. This community has probably fought harder for the protection of First Amendment rights than any other industry in the country or the world. And so I think you're exactly right. It's ironic that over the past 20 years, somehow, the label of Internet censorship has been slapped on anything that would protect creators who are the ones actually fighting against censorship. They want to get their expression out there to the greatest number of people and to allow people who do that to actually make a living doing it. And at the end of the day, while Internet censorship is sort of a a tagline that the other side has effectively used... When you peel it back, it's really giant companies, you know, wanting to limit how much they have to pay and what their liability is.
0: Not so dissimilar from terrestrial radio, which is a whole other topic that we will not go into at this point.
3: I was going to say, if we have another hour, let's go for it.
0: (laughs) Well, Mitch Glazier is the Senior Executive Vice President of the RIAA. Mitch, what a pleasure to have you on the
4: show. Thanks so much.
0: I Love the Valley O. by Shushu. You're listening to The Future of What. If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. We're talking to attorney and artist John P. Strom. John, welcome to The Future of What.
4: Thank you. I'm happy to be here.
0: I'm happy to have you. So today we are talking about this letter that went to Congress, signed by all these organizations and 400 artists, asking congress to think about revising section 512 of the dmca so we wanted to talk to you and get your take on it basically based on how it affects your life as a as an entertainment lawyer
4: youtube was launched in 2005 and i think at that point the dmca takedown procedure and, and appeal procedure was was fairly efficient and and i used to have clients occasionally who would be very very hard-line about having no unauthorized songs or recordings or, or live clips or whatever on YouTube. And I had a couple in particular going back to 2006 or seven when, when YouTube was really growing popularity who, who wanted me to, you know, to send take down notices for every, every thing that, that went up on, on YouTube. And, and I would usually just, then I just take a minute and give them a form and say, here's how you do it. You know, mm-hmm. you can start doing this because this is not a, a really efficient use of a, of a lawyer who bills by the hour—you know—I'm going to be handling these every single day, and you know, the, YouTube's a, had the had the safe harbor of of you know not being directly responsible for the infringement if it if it didn't know about the infringing activity or have reason to know about it. So if it responded to the takedown notices, then that worked at the time. Now that became kind of a, a bit like a game of whack-a-mole because as YouTube grew, there was so much more content uploaded and so many more potential infringements. And it got to the point, I think, by the time YouTube's monetization program started to really mature in the late 2000s, where you know, there, there was a lot more of a financial incentive to make sure that, you know, that people who, who wanted to go into YouTube just to listen to music, which was something that was definitely starting to really evolve at that point would be clicking on the right link that would actually direct a payment to the rights holder rather than something that, you know, was, was unauthorized, right? And there was some litigation. There's the, the Viscount the v. YouTube case, I guess it was in 2012, that really made clear that YouTube did get the benefit of the safe harbor. But I think it, it probably directly resulted in YouTube deciding to try to come up with a, a more efficient automated process for dealing with an, infringement claims. And YouTube came up the, with the content ID system. Mm-hmm. Right. And the, the way the content ID system works from my understanding, and, and I'm sure you will talk to people in this podcast who are more sophisticated about this is that somebody who's a, usually a, a bigger rights holder, like a record company or a publisher or, you know, a big artist. And then I'm just talking about music would also apply to films and video games and any, any any visual or, or audio content can enter into an agreement with YouTube, where YouTube has tools in place, software to identify fingerprint for content, and be able to automatically, basically uh, pursue whatever sort of enforcement that that rights holder requests. And. The idea of that is, is great, and it's much more efficient on its face than the game of whack-a-mole we're looking at. And when you get, you know, I don't know, hundreds of millions or, or billions of, of, of clips on, on YouTube, then it becomes very, very inefficient to police it in any other way than doing it in some sort of automated system like like Content ID. So the, the idea of it is great. Now, the potential problem is that it casts a really wide net, and if the software that's identifying the, the potentially infringing content isn't able to analyze the context, then they're going to capture some legitimately licensed content, right? So that's just inefficient, you know, and I'm sure that there are ways that, are, that, that major rights holders are, are, are dealing with that in a way so that, so that maybe they're, they're able to recognize it at the YouTube level. But I think that the bigger potential risk is the smaller users who might have a, a legitimate use under, under, say, for example, the Fair Use Doctrine and I'll give you an example of that. So, so if you, if you have an understanding at all, what fair use is, it's, it's basically, it's a, it's within the copyright act. It's, it's a defense for certain kinds of, of what would technically be infringement where, where there's, there's, you know, a, a use that's legitimate that would basically exempt it from, or, or be a valid defense to infringement. So an example of that would be classroom use or, it would be potentially criticism and that's, and that's in the actual statutory language. And these are such small scale instances where there isn't much money involved where, you know, probably from a practical stance, nobody's going to go and litigate these, you know, these, these, these little small scale takedowns when there's pennies involved. But the real risk is that if somebody has a YouTube channel and they get, they get flagged a few times for, for infringements, then they can get their whole channel taken down. And this, this is, you know, somebody's way of, of, uh, maybe legitimately making money. So, you know, it's, it's, there, there's some potential problems out there. But I think that, that what they've put into place with the content ID, you know, it's inevitable that, that something like that has to work.
0: Well, I think it's interesting that you brought up the fair use argument because there are a lot of people making that argument right now. And a lot of them are actually funded by Google and the tech companies that are obviously mm. really doing well by the status quo. But I think it's important to bring that up because I think, you know, on my side of the issue, on the on the side of that says that Section 512 does need reform, I think all of us are willing to work with people who are claiming fair use. I think that that's completely part of the deal. I think that mm-hmm. the other side of it is that, you know, as content creators and copyright owners, we feel like we don't have any control at all. And that's been really a problem because it's that whack-a-mole thing of you send a notice and the very next second it's up again. So you actually can't control whether your content is up or not. And so, you know, with that as the other side, you know, the music industry is losing so many millions of dollars to proper content owners, artists, and labels that it seems like, you know, the interests of a few people who are claiming fair use, it's like, your interests can be totally aligned with ours, but we want everyone to know that, you know, we'd like to stop the bleeding. (laughs) And after, Mm -hmm. you know, it's been since 1998 that the DMCA was written. So it's been, what is that, 18 years? You know, it's been a long time to have this lack of ability to control our own content and copyright.
4: Well, this is legislation that was drafted when the internet was a very different place. Exactly. And I think we've all recognized that for a long time. And I don't know if, if this content ID system that, that that YouTube's put in place is to, you know, circumvent efforts to, for, for, for a needed overhaul of of the, of the legislation. And, and I don't, I don't think it's the most efficient possible system, especially when, when, you know, my clients and and the clients that my firm largely represents are content creators and owners you know, who benefit from monetization and, and quite frankly just from control. Right. And having having the ability to, to to manage the you know, the bundle of rights that they theoretically should control. And that's been an issue from you know, I think if you think about the the DMCA from a nineteen ninety eight perspective, it seems really visionary. Right. Because yeah. it was certainly sufficient to deal with the issues that occurred then. And you know, if somebody is building a platform, an internet platform that that relies on user-generated and uploaded content, then I think there's a strong argument that that it's counterproductive to to innovation to hold them to a, a strict contributory infringement standard because we all benefit in a way from from these these platforms. But you know, there needs to be a, an efficient way for those who control those rights to be able to really have have a reliable and efficient way to to. You know, be, be very precise in how they want to control those
0: rights. Do you have any thoughts on this as an artist from an artistic perspective, you know, as someone who was in bands and, you know, in terms of like Blake Babies or Antana content that's up on YouTube? I mean, what's your personal experience of this?
4: I really just, you know, I, I don't have a whole lot of emotional investment in that. And I don't, I, I've long since looked over the dream of making any money from it. So I, I'm far more likely to have strong opinions on behalf of my clients than I am for my own stuff. But I will say that, that there's that one thing that's really frustrated me as an artist. And it's also something that's frustrated me as an artist counsel, but it's definitely touched my artist life. Is It's very frustrating for me. When there's music, recorded music of, of mine up there, that, that I want to go away. You know, I, I, I feel as if, you know, people, you know, access my music and enjoy it. I, I should be entitled to some compensation, but I'm not depending my livelihood on it. So I'm not really out there actively policing the, the tiny bit of money that's coming through my music. But I definitely have a very vested interest in not having music available under my name for sale that I just think is crappy.
0: Right, exactly. And I think that's a perfect sort of last word for this episode, because I think that's really all all artists and labels want at this point, is we just want to be able to control what's up there. That's really the bottom line.
4: Yeah, well, I, I think that's reasonable. And I think it is a real challenge when we get to the point where everyone's going to acknowledge at this point that there are many benefits of, of the vastness and, and you know enormous number of, of, of users on the internet and the ability to make money from scale but it's that scale that creates all the issues it's the very scale itself that makes it really hard to manage
0: exactly and
4: uh, yeah i'd be really interested because i think if you do get into uh and and you know i see i see many strong arguments in favor of of, you know new legislation to address these issues i think it's inevitable eventually we we overhaul the copyright acts so we don't have to shoehorn so much into you know it's drafted under you know technologies that are now it didn't exist, but the problem is, then you you draft legislation that that makes sense, you know, in 2016, and and and, and, and you know it's it's irrelevant by the time you get to 2020. You know, it's, 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 <laughs> right. you know the technology is evolving so fast, but I don't think that that's a a reason not to pursue it because the DMCA was was a way to kind of you know use twisty ties and duct tape to fix the 1976 act, which was obviously inadequate for these digital issues because issues just simply didn't exist. Making a copy meant something so different then right. than it did even in 1998. But right. now making a copy means something different because we're getting into this world where you know the vast majority of people are, are getting most of their entertainment through, through streaming content. So it's an entirely different set of issues from the, this issue of you know controlling the making of copies. and and though so it, it really boggles the mind to think about the challenge, but I, I think it's it's you know it's a really important challenge for Congress to take on to make sure that the copyright laws that we're that we're operating under are appropriate for the for the technologies that exist and the challenges that exist.
0: I completely agree. And on that note, John Strom is an attorney and an artist. John, thank you so much for being with us on the future of what?
3: It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Porsche.
0: Was track three by the punks. You're listening to The Future of What? We're talking to artist business manager Perry Resnick. Perry, welcome to The Future of What.
5: Thank you, Porsche. Good to be here.
0: So you today we're discussing this issue of this letter that was sent to Congress regarding reform for section 512 of the DMCA. And I wanted to talk to you because you're actually an artist representative on the Sound Exchange Board. You're not a signer to this letter, but you represent artists who, of course, have a lot at stake in this discussion. Right. So I wanted to get the artist perspective from you about this whole Section 512 reform.
5: Okay. Well, um, I'm a business manager for feature recording artists, and as people, I'm sure, read all over the place, royalties for recording artists have gone down the tubes. Artists are making a fraction of what they used to make because now streaming accounts for fractional amount of what this used to be when there were CDs and before that albums. And, and one of the big problems is, is people using artists' recordings for their own purposes and not licensing them. For example, on YouTube, people upload... I think one of the most famous cases was this Dancing Baby case that used a Prince song. there uh-huh. was, was like a baby that was dancing and it used, I think, Let's Go Crazy and, and Prince sued and lost. Um, so that, it's, people can just basically use artists' recordings for whatever they want. without And, and the rates that are being paid are, are really, really small, much smaller than for like an official video. Like if a record company puts out an official video uh, of an artist, that gets a certain amount of money. But when it's somebody uploads a video and uses an artist's song, it's fractional of, of what they get otherwise, and, and, and even less so compared to what royalties used to be. Right. You know, so it's a big problem. I mean, it used to be artists used to tour to promote a record. They make a record, then they would tour and in, terms, in hopes of selling more records. Now it's the opposite. Now artists tour to survive, and the music is what they present when they play it live.
0: Right, right.
5: It's kind of turn things on its head.
0: Yeah. And it's funny. It sort of made the old radio adage, terrestrial radio doesn't pay a royalty to artists, and they always... Said it was because getting played on the radio was promotional value for the artist, and it's really funny because now it's like all music, all of artists' music is promotional value as opposed to, in any way, a money maker, which, you know, is kind of depressing.
5: Right, everything is for exposure, and and the best quote I heard from this was from David Byrne, who's a client of ours, and and is also on the sound Exchange board as well. And David said, "Isn't exposure something you die from?" <laughs> I thought that was the best quote. Yeah. Exposure doesn't mean anything. You can't pay a bill with exposure.
0: Right. You know, this effort by a lot of people in the industry has just gotten picked up in the news. I'm not sure if you saw this week. Nikki Six just came out with a big letter to YouTube saying that, you know, it's not fair that artists are getting paid such small royalties and also that artists have to be able to control their own content. And I think with the death of Prince... I mean, there's a lot of timely stuff happening right now that's bringing this conversation into the open about just, you know, really the bottom line is, do artists get to control where their music goes and how it's used, or don't they?
5: Right. Well, artists who are signed to major labels especially give up a certain amount of control just by signing those deals, and theoretically the record company will provide them with marketing and promotion and and get their name out there and try to make them successful. But um, even the record companies are losing control at this point because YouTube, somebody uploads something to YouTube and a record company will send a takedown notice saying, you know, you don't have the rights to use that song or that recording, I should say. Either one, it could be a recording or a song. Music publishers do it as well and say you don't have the rights to do that and they will take down that song and then... Five minutes later, it'll pop up again. It'll be 10 copies, 50 copies, 100 different versions of it. And last year, so, I mean, record companies can serve these takedown notices to infringing companies like YouTube, you know, if, if there's a, a, um, an upload that infringes on a copyright. But when it comes down, it doesn't stay down. It goes right back up. So basically, what I think one of the things that people are looking for, artists are looking for, and I think the record companies are looking for as well, is for takedown and stay down. So that if something is, if a takedown notice is given on a particular work, it can't be put right back up five minutes later. Exactly. Something like 500 million takedown notices were served last year in 2015. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, that's that's over 2 million a day if you exclude weekends. <laughs> that's, that's nuts.
0: So we've already talked on this program to Richard Burgess from a and Mitch Glazier from the RIAA, and they've both said... You know, nobody has the staff to serve these takedown notices. Nobody, you know, it's even onerous for the companies who receive the takedown notices. You know, you need to employ God knows how many people to deal with 2 million takedown notices a day. Now, of course, I can't say for sure that they're not handling those, but they're certainly handling them in their own good time. I received a reply to a takedown notice that had been sent six years earlier one time. My
5: label, so. <laughs> yeah, they're not exactly incentivized to do this. Right. Because, you know, if you search for, for a particular recording on Google, it, and it'll come up with a lot of results that are unlicensed, um, piracy sites, user-generated, unofficial, unlicensed videos, things like that. So they, and they make, you know, billions and billions of dollars in advertising on these sites. So they have no incentive to really take it down. Right. When they they probably could if they wanted to. If they, it does take resources, but they are able to weed out pornography and things like that. They don't have a problem, you know, weeding that out.
0: Well, that's just it. You know, any it's disingenuous on the part of corporations to say that they don't have the ability to filter their platforms because I mean, I did I wasn't even aware of this until this week, but because I have a 5-year-old But there's a YouTube kids platform and it's completely filtered. You know, it's there. You absolutely are not going to see porn. You're not going to see anything on that that is not okay for kids. Right. So it's like clearly they can, they have the ability, they have the technology to do that.
5: Exactly. It's that they don't have the financial incentive to do it. So that's why people are trying to get this law amended. The the DMCA amended so that when a notice is given of an unlicensed use, it actually, like I said, take down and stay down. I think is is the expression people are using to say what we want.
0: Right now, as an artist representative, how do you feel? Because everybody sort of has the same idea in the industry, which is you know, those of us that you know work with associations with lots of letters in the title, you know, nobody cares what we have to say, but they do care about what Katy Perry has to say, and they do care about you know, what Beyonce has to say and and stuff like that. So what's your feeling? I mean, like I mentioned earlier, some artists are starting to come out right now and make a little bit of noise about this issue. Do you think this is an issue that artists in general are going to be able to get behind?
5: Yeah, definitely. Especially the more independent the artist, the more I can see them getting behind it because independent artists certainly don't have the capacity to police the internet even like I said, even major record companies who are multinational conglomerates are having trouble policing the internet. What's a single artist to do? So it's a, it's really a problem. Yeah, and, and artists can definitely get behind it. I, I don't see a downside for artists at all getting involved in this.
0: Right, because sometimes issues like this, people say like, "Oh, I don't want to go against Spotify or something because Spotify is not going to put up my songs." But it, you know, something like YouTube. I mean, people are going to use your music no matter what. I mean, the number of, you know, user-generated content videos that go up every day. Right. You know, it's, it, there's no way to stop that.
5: Exactly. It's, it's mostly everyday people who are uploading videos. So it's not like you're going to be pissing off broadcasters or something like that or Google or, or Spotify. Exactly.
0: Right. Exactly. Well, I do hope that that is where we head with this. I really would love to see more artists come out and be vocal, because I think that will help the general public understand the issue. What do you think is the best case scenario sort of outcome for this whole issue right now?
5: Well, I've referred to it a couple of times, which would be best to have the law amended to have to take down and stay down, so that when, when uh, an infringing copyright is found and is taken down, it cannot be put back up by the company that uh, took it down. Excellent that would be the best-case scenario, in my opinion.
0: Perry Resnick is a business manager with RZO. Perry, thank you so much for joining us on The Future of What today.
5: Thank you for much. great being here.
0: And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Hela, Shoo, The Punks, and of course our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by The Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. For more info on the shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash what. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next
2: week.